0: So we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel this morning, chapter 2, as you're finding that in your Bible or Scripture journal. I want to tell you about uh, when I was, I don't know, 27, 28. I think I graduated seminary when I was 27. I was on staff with Glorious Presence Church in Elkton, Maryland. I was Minister of Education and Outreach you think education and outreach, that's a broad title. Yep, it meant they could ask me to do anything and, and it would fit under one of those two areas. And I was not an elder. I was on staff as, as a minister and I was serving underneath of Pastor Kurt who um, I still to this day admire and look up to. The guy had, had multiple degrees, was well-loved by the congregation and was a wonderful, captivating uh, preacher. And, and I, as a staff minister, only preached a few times a year. Um, and what happened was Uh, I don't remember who started it, but a couple of the older guys in the congregation started getting Harleys. And so one by one, you know, these guys, we kind of had this little biker crew and Pastor Kirk got a bike. And, and at one time he was out, he was like riding through a parking lot or something like really silly. He was embarrassed about how silly he is, it was, but he laid down his bike in a parking lot like it fell over, and he was only going like 15 or something, so it was not like a major accident, but it did something to him. It disrupted like some internal organ. He had like some internal damage, and the doctors were like, you need to take it easy. I think it was about 12 weeks, and he was not going to be preaching. He was still going to be like serving, but just standing up and moving around and stuff, it, it, he needed to heal, and so when I heard this, all right, well, let's, let's hypothetically or for the best case scenario, let's say my initial reaction was sadness for Pastor Kurt. But after like a brief moment of sadness, I got really excited because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a new like seminary graduate, right? I'm the only other person in this church that has a seminary degree, that's trained. Uh, the, there was other elders, right, who preached probably more than I did, but I'm like, this is it. Like, I'm going to get the call up, right? Like, I, I'm fi- I know what a good preacher I am. I know how, how gifted I am. I know how, how well the congregation would be served. But I'm like, it's at least going to be 50%, right? Like, they're at least going to ask me every other week to preach while Pastor Kurt heals. Okay, maybe some of the other guys can fill in. But, like, this is going to be it. Finally, everybody will know, like, who I am, how God has gifted me. And I was so excited. And so the elders meet, and they make a plan, and they come out with the preaching schedule. Guess how many weeks I preached during that 12-week stint when Pastor Kurt was on the disabled list? Zero, that's right, that's right, zero times. So here I was, like I was preparing to be all the way up here and God's like, nope, you're going to spend the next 12 weeks sitting with the congregation, receiving humbly, you will be humbled, right, to be taught, to be patient, to grow in the Lord, and where I thought I was going to be lifted way up here, I was in my own heart brought way down here, right? And that's what we're going to see this morning In Hannah's song and in all of chapter 2. This idea that, that some are lowered and others are raised. And we see that in the world around us, right? Businesses, nations rising and falling in your own lives. We struggle, we, we live a lowly life while others seem to rise to greatness. At times you think it's going to be your season to rise to, to get that promotion or to, to, to get that spouse you're dreaming after or to have those children and have that next success. And then the Lord says, nope, this is going to be a period of humility, a period of waiting, a period uh, where you feel low at times, but you are low. We're talking about in the book of Samuel, the rise of the king, and we see throughout the book the rise and fall of great leaders in Israel And Hannah's prayer this morning is going to really unpack and express beautifully how God lowers some and raises others. We read last week Hannah's story, right? This barren woman who pleads before God. She's being mocked and ridiculed for not having children. She pleads before God to have a son, says if if the Lord answers her prayer, she'll dedicate her son back to the Lord. Samuel is born. She is rejoicing. She takes him to the temple. She's dedicating him before the, the, the priest Eli. Her heart is overflowing because she, she's rejoicing that she can now give this son, this precious son that she longed for, she can now give him back to the Lord. And this is her song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let me pray briefly and then we'll read together. God help us, send your spirit to guide our time. That we could hear you, that we could be encouraged and challenged, and draw us. Lord, that our strength might be in you and you alone. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Somebody better say amen. 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 What a powerful song of praise here we have in Scripture. Hannah starts off there. In verse 1, saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. She says, my horn is exalted. Now, Hannah's not a unicorn. The idea of horn in in Hebrew imagery and poetry is your strength, right? The horn of an animal, the bigger the horn, the stronger, the, the more powerful it was. So to talk about your horn was to talk about your strength before God. She says, my strength has been lifted up. She's proclaiming to her enemies, those who were hostile to me, who opposed me, who mocked me, who said this day would never happen, that where I would be a mother. He said, man, the Lord, she said, the Lord is faithful. I rejoice in His salvation. In verse 2, she proclaims this powerful powerful promise, hope, declaration. You see it on on our banners this morning. There is no one who is holy like the Lord. There is no one that's holy, meaning set apart or distinct like our God. There is no one besides the Lord in heaven. There is no rock that is stable and steady and steadfast besides our God. And so in verse 3, in light of who God is, she says it's ridiculous for you or anybody to keep on boasting, to speak in an arrogant way, because our God is a God of knowledge, right? He knows who you really are, and all of our actions are weighed and assessed by Him. And you may think on the outside you have stuff to boast about, but the Lord knows who you are on the inside. And so Hannah, reflecting and praising God, praising God for her own reversal of fates, one who was barren has now given birth She praises God for how our God is one who flips expectations. He reverses fortunes. And so in verse 4, it says that the bows used for weapons by mighty warriors, they will all eventually be broken. The feeble, those who stumble, they will one day be clothed with strength, right? Because strength doesn't come from weapons, doesn't come from money or power. All of that can be lost or taken or broken. Strength comes from the Lord. And so in verse 5, she says that those who at one time were full, those who were satisfied with the comforts, comforts of this world, they have resorted to hiring themselves out just to get bread. But those who once were hungry, now they, their fortunes have been re- reversed and they have plenty to eat. Verse 5, the woman who was barren now has given birth to seven children, but the the mother who was bragging and boasting the many children that she had now finds herself suffering, languishing, it says, in, in, in loneliness. See, God is a God of reversals. We see this in the life of Hannah. And in all of this, this happens because God is in control. All of life is in the Lord's hands. He is the ultimate king. He has dominion over all that happens in the universe. Verse 6 says that the Lord brings death to some and life to others. He sends some down to Sheol, the Hebrew concept there of the grave, and raises others up to new life. Verse 7 says that the Lord makes some poor and makes others rich. He brings some low and He exalts others on high. God raises the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the pile of ashes and He seats them with princes and with noblemen that they would inherit honor. This beautiful song of praise, exalting our God. You'll find very similar language in Psalm 113. Now, now, how does God manage all of this? How does all of this happen? Well, verse 8 says that the very pillars of the earth are the Lord's. That means God created, built the earth. He set its foundation, set up its pillars. Every person, every event, every circumstance rest on God's pillars. He balances it all. He judges it all. He rewards good and he punishes evil. As Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Now, I, I hear this, and I had a question this week, and maybe some of you have the same question. Well, when and how does all this lowering and raising happen? Like, how, how does this happen? We read it, you say, maybe even say, I know that it's true, but the people that are currently poor, when and how are they going to be lifted up? And the per- people that are currently rich and powerful that may be abusing their, their wealth and power, when will they be lowered? You say, well, d- does this happen through natural means? Like, does it happen through the natural circumstances and the regular day-to-day of life? And sometimes the answer is yes, right? Because if you are godly, if you are obedient, if you are faithful, if you live according to God's commands in the way that God created the world, you will find blessing and prosperity. Life will go better. Family life will be stable, right? If you're honest and a person of integrity and business, you should, you should be, be raised, so to speak. So often this happens simply because God calls you to follow Him and to walk with Him, right? And in so doing, you will often find that you are lifted up in life. Maybe not on all the worldly ways that, that some may want, but in the ways that really matter before God. Sometimes that's how it happens, but not always, right? Sometimes people are, are rich and powerful, and, and, and they're dishonest, and they're scheming, and they're prideful, and yet they still seem to excel in this life. And there are times in which God will supernaturally intervene to lower someone like that, right? To supernaturally bring to light their dishonesty, or to supernaturally uh, humiliate them, humble them. Maybe it is, a, is, is a, a sickness. Maybe it's a natural disaster that comes upon some that, that need to be lowered. Sometimes God supernaturally intervenes in this life and sometimes it's, it's, it's done to humble and lower those that are in, in places of, of, of power that shouldn't be. Sometimes it's done to, to raise others up. And you may find that unexplicably you have favor. A relative you didn't even know passes away. And now you have the finances you need to get out of debt, to, to live a, a life of stewardship. You, you may find that supernaturally you just get offered a position in a, in a company, or, or you, you, you meet a, a spouse, or your children are blessed in a way that there's no explanation for this. It's the hand of God. So sometimes he uses natural means. Sometimes he uses supernatural means. But, but sometimes you wait and you wait and you wait. You think, man, this guy's only got a couple days more to live. Like, when is the Lord going to lower him? Because he needs to be lowered, right? And there are times where this promise may not happen until the life to come. There are times when when God will lower and raise someone in this life, but sometimes it does not fully and finally happen until eternity, until you cross from this life into the next. But make no mistake about it, all those who need to be lowered before God because they are not living in His will will be lowered, if not in this life, in the next life. And equally make no mistake about it, that all of those who need to be exalted, who who should be exalted because their heart is for God, because they have been transformed, because they are walking in His will. They may live their life in poverty, in loss, in sickness, in pain. They may live their life without the loved ones that they long for, but make no mistake about it, in the life to come, they will be exalted, and they will be lifted up. When and how does God fulfill this word according to His timing in this life or in the next? But this lowering and raising is not random as I've already indicated. It's all done because God is good and God is just and His providence is at work giving everyone their just reward in His due time. And so verse 9 says that He will guard the feet of His faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. Right? See those that are raised are the faithful ones. Those that are lowered are the wicked ones. God guards the feet. He watches over every step of those that are faithful to Him. But those that are Walking away from God in wickedness are cut off. They die in darkness. And so verse 9 says that it is not by strength, not by your own strength, that a a person is going to prevail or succeed, right? Verse 10 goes on to say that the adversaries of the Lord, those that oppose Him, will be broken to pieces. He will thunder from heaven. God will judge the earth, the ends of the earth, and He will give strength to His King. He will exalt the horn of His anointed one. Hannah is praying there prophetically. There is not yet a king in Israel. She's praying prophetically about the kings that will come in the years to come in Israel, but ultimately the king, the king, the anointed one who will one day come, our King Jesus, whose horn is is strengthened by the Lord. See, our God is a God who lowers and a God who raises. The arrogant and rebellious are lowered before God, and the humble and obedient are raised up. And you can look at your own life and you think, am I low? Am I high? Am I being lowered? Am I being raised up? I will tell you this, that your own pride is not going to get you anywhere in life. You, you want to you be high, you want to have all that you long for, you want to be at the top, whatever that means for you, whether it's money or beauty or power or success or friendship or love or children or stability, you want to be at the top. Your own pride, your own self-exaltation is not going to get you there. You cannot succeed in life by your own strength. You may think you can raise yourself up and maybe for a time you can be successful, but you will eventually be brought low. I thought of a, of a man who, in some ways, I guess, like Hannah, had this reversal, different circumstances, of course, but, but he went from being probably as low as you can go to, to, I think, you know, as high as any of us would want to be in this life. It, it started out with tragedy. Sadly, as a young boy playing sports, he was sexually molested by a coach. Parents didn't know, never told a single soul. He, he got into high school, he, he became a, a, a young man. And and in his effort to push it down, he, he, he said, the only way I can really deal with the sexual abuse that I face by another man is to try to conquer as many women as I can. And so he just spent his teenage and young adult years trying to sleep with as many women as he could to, to comfort himself, to, to make himself feel strong, to make himself try to feel right on the inside. And he kept this all inside, never relied on anyone, never revealed this to anyone, was kind of the, one of those guys that walked around trying to be as big and strong as he possibly could be. And, and he did it for a season. He excelled in sports. Uh, he, he was a tough guy, you know, would fight anybody who looked the wrong way at him. Tough as you could be on the outside, at least. Eventually, he got married. But as you can imagine, this pattern continued. He cheated on his wife. He, he was a construction worker, And he worked long, hard hours, worked overtime on union jobs, making as much money as he could, but he noticed that there were others working longer and harder than him, and so he asked a coworker one day, how is it that you can work 16 hours and never take a coffee break, a lunch break, not eat, not stop, and you never get tired? He said, here, take these pills. He said, everybody on the crew is taking this. You know what it was? It was crystal meth got addicted to crystal meth so that he could work around the clock, make all this money, hide from who he was on the inside, the brokenness that he was. And eventually, of course, his wife found out that he was a drug addict, that he was an adulterer. And somehow, only by God's grace, she didn't leave him. She helped him get into rehab. He began to open up about the abuse that he had suffered and the the, the lie that he had been living. And he eventually gave himself fully to Christ. And slowly, this process of raising, going from as low as you could be to being raised up, it happened over decades, okay? Some of you are like, oh, good, I, I need a quick fix. Let me-, let me give it all to Jesus. It may not be a quick fix. Over decades, the Lord began to raise him up. His marriage began to be restored and stabilized. They were blessed with three daughters. He, he went from, from working construction to owning his own construction company. He became a leader in his local church. He's now a man with children and grandchildren and a ministry and a blessing because after being lowered, he gave himself in humility to the Lord and God raised him. A man who's a couple decades from now, nobody's name will be remembered, but his name is written in the book of life and he'll be remembered in eternity. Where is your strength, friends? To whom do you look? To whom do you rely on? It's arrogant to think that you can live and prosper on your own strength, your own might, your own will, your own intelligence, your own hard work. Listen, the only strength worth having is the strength that comes from the Lord. He's the one who guards the feet of the faithful ones. He's the one that exalts the horn and the strength of those who trust him. You may feel weak. You may feel feeble. That's exactly where you need to be. Because in humility, you can walk with the Lord, and he will wrap you in his strength. The prophet Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What does it mean to live by the Spirit of God in the strength of God? Here's a few things. Instead of arrogantly relying on your own education, your own training, your own hard work, your own ingenuity, humbly rely every moment of every day on on the Spirit of God, Instead of, instead of spending time trying to figure it out, well, honey, what are we going to do about X, Y, or Z? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. How about you pray? Instead of living your life as a proud loner, men, I'm sorry, but, but some of you are proud loners. Isolating yourself, keeping it all inside. To, to walk humbly with the Lord means opening yourself up to others, means leaning on the wide counsel of others and saying, I, I, I need help. I can't figure it out. I need to, to be a humble person who looks to others in friendship and counsel. Instead of constantly moving and rushing and working, you say, well, I need to work. I have to work more. That's the only way we're going we're gonna to get out of this. To be humble before the Lord means to slow down. To rest and to be still before God. Instead of listening to the latest fads, listen and meditate on the Word of God. Instead of doing what feels right in your heart, walk in God's commands, God's way. Listen, the humble, obedient person is the one strengthened by God. The one whose very mouth and very life proclaims verse 2, who's a living testimony that there is no one holy like the Lord, there was no one like Him, there was no rock like our God, like my God. That is the person who is raised up in the only way that really matters. As we read this, this song of Hannah, I thought of another childless woman, and, and all the commentators thought of this as well. Um, another, another childless woman, not a woman who was barren, but a woman who just hadn't had kids yet. In fact, I suspect Mary wasn't even ready to have kids. But when the angel visited her in Luke's gospel and told her, That as an unwed virgin, she was going to conceive and bear a son. In fact, a son that would be the son of the Most High. She responds with humility, with obedience, saying, I'm a servant of the Lord. And she offers this song of praise later on. And listen as I read from Luke chapter 1. Listen to the similarities to Hannah's song. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For, be, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who was mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary, the woman of God chosen by God in the, in the, the tradition and the heritage of Hannah with that same heart, with that same theology of the Lord lowering and raising, Mary who spoke about the promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever, who would give birth to Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the one who would come to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made to Hannah, made to Samuel, this Son of God who would come to bring life on earth. And, and this is how Jesus himself lived. Jesus himself walked in this type of humility, relying on the Lord's strength. Jesus himself demonstrated the type of reversal that we saw in Hannah's life that she sung about. Jesus was poor. He was despised. He had no worldly status. He was mistreated, betrayed, abused by the world, but before God, he was exalted, amen? He was lifted up to the highest place. Jesus now has the name above all names. The the name of Jesus, every knee will one day bow, and Jesus, even Jesus didn't prevail by his own strength, but by the Spirit of God, fully God, fully human. See, in Jesus, we see the rise of the true King, the eternal King, God Himself come to earth to show us what it means to live in humility, to show us what it means to be exalted in the right way by reliance on the Lord's Spirit, our Savior, our example, the one who we now look to, to lead and guide and fill us, whether you find yourself in a season of lowliness or in a season of height, either way. Our hearts are in humility toward God, relying on Him for His strength. Now, now we're going to turn now. We've been looking at how God uh, lowers and raises in, in Hannah's song. We're going to turn now to verse 11 in the rest of the chapter. And if you've been reading along with us, as I hope you're doing in the book of Samuel, you may have read about the life of Eli and his sons and thinking, what in the world? This is a crazy story. It's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? But here's the thing the rest of the chapter is is the same point. It's making the same message, right? Over and over again, we just read that that the arrogant and the rebellious are lowered, and the humble and the obedient are exalted. And instead of reading about it in Hannah's poem, it's now going to be explained to us again through the life circumstances of Eli and Samuel. It begins in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. Elkanah is Samuel's father, Hannah's wife. And the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So Samuel has been dedicated to God. He's now living in the tabernacle at the place of worship. Eli is the priest that we met last week. Remember the one who thought Hannah was drunk when she was actually just praying? Eli is likely the high priest leading worship at the temple. But Eli, as we'll read, is losing a step. Now, by God's grace, Samuel is able to keep in step with the Lord right? He's able to minister to the Lord, we read there in verse 11. But then in verse 12, we get a contrast with some guys that are worthless. Verse 12 says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. How's that for a summary statement of their life? Now the sons of Eli are introduced at the very beginning of the book, right? Hophni and Phineas. And like their father, they're priests, and they are training to take over the temple, to lead the nation of Israel in worship after their father goes. They, they are intended to lead the nation in worship, in songs, in prayer, to lead the nation in sacrifices, in the atonement of sin, to lead the nation in living and walking out the laws of God. They should have been exalted to, to high places in God's kingdom, but instead they were worthless. It's an interesting little word. Ten times we're going to read this in the book of Samuel. We actually heard it once last week when Hannah said, I'm not a worthless woman, right? This Hebrew word is not just meaning somebody that's wicked. It's not just somebody that's ungodly. They're so wicked. They're so ungodly that they're literally good for nothing. They are a dirty, rotten scoundrel. They're worthless. Why were they worthless? Verse 12 says, they did not know the Lord. Men who were supposed to be leading at the tabernacle, did not know the Lord. They knew about God, but they had no intimacy, no relationship, no true knowledge of God. They may have known Him mentally. They knew the law more than likely, but they did not know Him. Jesus gives us that same word of caution in the Gospels where people talk about all their acts, all their work. Look what I did for you. And Jesus says, remember those somber words, depart from me, I never knew you. Verses 13 to 16 go on to give an example of how these priests would regularly abuse their power and mistreat the Israelites. Israelites would come to Shiloh where the tabernacle was, and they'd bring their lambs and their goats and their doves and their grain to offer worship to God. And there was very, very specific rules and regulations. You can, you can spend all afternoon reading the book of Leviticus, okay? This is how worship was to be done to Yahweh in Israel. And and Hophni and Phineas knew that, but they disregarded it and abused it. Re- real quick, you guys want a real quick summary? There's five different sacrifices that you could bring to the tabernacle. First was a burnt offering; it was the most common. It was offered every morning and every evening by the priests. It was an expression of devotion, of surrendering to God. And, and they would, with the exception of the animal hide, they would they would they would uh, take the hide off the animal and use it. Every, everything else of the animal that you would make for a burnt offering was burned up on the altar. You had a grain offering. That was just bread and grain, okay? That was like the vegetarian option. You could bring either like just ground grain or a loaf of bread, and, and the priest would take a pinch of the grain and burn it on the altar. The rest of the, the bread, guess what he would do? He would use it to feed his family. That's how they got paid. The third and fourth offerings were, were made to atone for sin. One simply called the sin offering. The other called the guilt offering. The guilty person would bring the animal, they'd lay their hand on the animal, and they'd confess their sins to transfer their sin onto the animal. Then the worshiper would actually kill the animal. The animal would be butchered. And, and here's what's interesting. They would, they would take the blood, would be poured on the altar. They would take the fat of the in, and the internal organs, considered the richest, most nutritious, best part of the meat, the fat and the internal organs, Okay. I'll take a chicken breast, but that's what they would do. They would take the best of it, and they would burn the best of it on the altar, okay? And then the rest of the meat, the the legs and the hinds and all that, the rest of the, again, the priest would take, and they would use that to feed their family. That's what the law of God said. The fifth type of offering was called a a peace offering or a fellowship offering, and it was unique. And it's the offering, I'm telling you all this, because it's the offering that's described here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The peace offering was, was made to worship, to, to express thanksgiving and fellowship with God. It was not to atone for sin. Same thing. They would take the, the blood, the fat, and the internal organs. They'd burn them on the altar as, a, as a, a sacrifice to God, giving the best to the Lord. And then they would take the rest of the meat, and guess what they would do with the fellowship offering? They would divide it up, and then the priest and the worshiper and, and their families would all eat together and fellowship together and share the food and have a, have a festival and celebrate and give thanks to God. And so in verses 13 to 16, it's the fellowship offering being described. But if you read it this week, and I'm not going to read it now, I'm just going to explain it to you. What the priest would do at that time, Hophni and Phinehas, would say, give me the fat, give give me those organs, because we're going to eat them. And they would take, they would literally steal them from the worshiper and not allow them to be burned on the altar to God. And then after the offering was made and they were boiling the meat, It says there that they would send their servant over with a big fork. This is literally what the Bible says. They would stab their fork into the pot and pull out a chunk of meat, whatever it was. They would basically take. There was no sharing. There was no dividing up. They would take from God. They took from the worshiper. These guys were abusing their power. And when you came to offer a peace offering at the tabernacle, they were like, good. More meat for us. We can get fat. And they took unfairly and unjustly, breaking the law of God, Stealing, stealing food from these people that had come to fellowship with their families. And it says that if anybody tried to protest this, it said they would take it by force. You know what these guys were? They were bullies. And so we read a summary statement in verse 17. Look at that. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Contempt means disrespect. They disrespected God, disrespected the people of God. Their sins were severe. Did not walk in humility. Did not walk in obedience to the Lord. And and yet, they're they're rising in power. They're priests of the temple. Everybody's got to do what they say. If not, they take it by force. Again, we're we're seeing this comparing and this contrasting. Verse 18, we're now going to see what is, by comparison, the lowly family of Elkanah. But look at how God is blessing them. Read with me in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she was up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. You see what the author is doing here? He's saying, look at the two sons of Eli, these abusive bullies breaking the law of God, but look at this quaint little family of Elkanah. And, and Hannah makes her son little robes, and she brings it to him at the temple, and they eat together, and they fellowship together, and, and the priest offers them a blessing, and they go home, and they are blessed, and they have, they have children, and they're walking with the Lord. What does verse 21 say? He continues to grow in the presence of the Lord, Samuel, right? Samuel is walking in the presence of the Lord. He's on his face before God. He's walking in humility despite the corruption going on in the temple around him. He's walking with God. And, and as we'll read in the book of Samuel, Samuel is rising. He's going to rise in influence and authority. His ministry is going to take off, unlike the true sons of Eli. What about Eli's family? Let's go back, let's go back to them. We pick back up, what he's doing this back and forth. Verse 22, now we read what, more about what's going on with these corrupt sons of Eli. Verse 22 says, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Man, that's a sad section of scripture, right? Eli's old. He's going to die soon. He will no longer be serving as priest. He's going to hand things off to his sons. But sadly, Eli keeps hearing about all these terrible things that they're doing. They're stealing meat from the sacrifices of the worshipers. and, and, And yes, what you think it says there is actually what it says. These two guys are going out. The women that are there at the temple, serving in the courtyard, ministering to God's people, they go and they... Sexually assault them, they abuse them, they have sex with them. These guys are thieves, they're, they're perverts, they're involved in a sexual scandal, involved in scandals at the temple. You don't even need social media, right? A sexual scandal is going to take off. News is spreading across Israel. Did you hear what the sons of Eli are doing? They're sleeping with all the women at the temple. Can you believe that? And so Eli confronts them. What is the matter with you? He says. Why are you acting this way? Why do I keep hearing about your wicked lifestyle? These, this is not a good report. And he gives them this warning in verse 25. He says, if you sin against other people, God can intercede for you. But you're sinning against the Lord as as priests of God, directly defiling God. Who is going to intercede for you then? But they wouldn't listen. They didn't listen to their father. They didn't listen to the Lord. Why? Why? Because they were committed to a, a life of arrogant rebellion against God. And so God left them in their hardness of heart. And verse 25 says that ultimately it was the will of the Lord to lower them. Ultimately it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, now here's a question that I have. Because if I had been living in Israel at that time. And maybe I was there when Hannah offered her song of praise. About God lowering and, and God raising. But yet here's Hophni and Phinehas abusing their power stealing, mistreating the women, and you say, okay, God, it's about time to lower, right? Like, what do you do when you see the wicked prospering? What do you do when you see people who are not living for the Lord, who have a hidden life behind the scenes, who are lying and deceiving and using their power, who are hiding things and getting away with it and prospering and in positions of power? I don't know about you, but man, that stirs up anger, frustration. God, why are they getting away with it? I don't have this scripture on the screen, but but Psalm 37 asks this exact same question. And Psalm 37 says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Don't get worked up and irritated and frustrated when you see people in power doing evil. Psalm 37 says, don't be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. And verse 9 says, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. We do see people getting away with literal murder, cheating, stealing, abusing power. And the Scriptures, there are other places to talk about fighting for justice, don't get me wrong. But if you allow your own soul to be irritated, in turmoil, built up with anger, you're doing nobody any good. And the scripture says, don't be anxious and fretful and irritated with the evildoer. They will soon fade like the grass. They will be cut off. You wait for the Lord. You be still before God. You trust the Lord and do good. Because Eli's family, they are on the way down. The people at that time might might not have seen that way, but they are on the way down. We get this Other update from Samuel in verse 26 are about Samuel. Again, another interjection about those that are being raised high. Verse 26 says, the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Right, So Samuel's rising. He's humbly serving at the temple, ministering before the Lord. He's growing. He's getting physically bigger. He's growing in favor with God, in favor with all the people. And then to wrap up this section, we get... We get a, a final word of condemnation against Eli and his sons. In verse twenty-nine or twenty-seven, this prophet shows up to give a prophecy to Eli about his family. And and this prophet describes the calling of the priests in Israel. And then he says this in verse twenty-nine: he says to Eli, "Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts?" Of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And the prophet said to Eli, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house then in distress you will look with envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. We don't have time to unpack all that this morning, but suffice it to say, Eli and his sons are going down. And we read in chapter 4, when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen from the tabernacle, Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day together, just as the prophet proclaimed that they would. And their, their lives live out, verse 30, those who honor the Lord will be honored. Those who despise the Lord will be disgraced, right? As we read earlier, the Lord kills and the Lord brings life. He brings some down to the grave. He raises others up. And all of this back and forth in chapter two is showing, demonstrating what Hannah has just sung about, that the arrogant and the rebellious will be brought low, but the humble and the faithful and the obedient will be raised up, and we're going to see that in the life of Samuel as his ministry takes off and he's used by God in powerful ways. We can look at Hophni and Phinehas and their pride and their rebellion and their disregard for the Lord's law, but all of us are prone to that left to ourselves. We're all prone to pride. We're all prone to arrogance. We would all abuse whatever power we were given were it not for God's grace. We would all rebel against God's will because humility and obedience do not come in our natural state because our natural state is one of sin. And so we need a priest. We need an intercessor. Not, not, not wicked men like the sons of Eli. We don't need a priest to mistreat us and take advantage of us. We need a priest who will come and serve us and intercede for you and I, because we need rescuing. We need someone to give us grace to walk in holiness. We need someone that can truly atone for our sin, intercede for us, and empower us. We need Christ. We need Christ, the true high priest, The one who came and walked in humility, who walked in obedience, who now stands in our place to intercede for us, who frees us from the destructive patterns of the world that you and I at times, it may be in just a quiet moment of your own heart, get sucked into. And Jesus came that we might be pulled up out of our lowly state of sin and death, that we could rise up with him out of death into new life, a resurrected life, exalted with Christ. Christ in His strength, in His righteousness, that now you and I could be empowered to walk in humility with the King of Kings. That's our calling as Christians, to be raised up not in our own definition, not in our own strength, but in, in God's kingdom, in God's definition, with humbly, humbly relying on Him, because you cannot prevail in your own strength. As I close out, let me just read you this from James chapter 4. Worship team, why don't you come up and prepare to close us out as we hear the Word of God. You find yourself struggling. You find yourself stuck in prideful patterns. You find yourself unable to to even have the strength to walk with God. Failing and stumbling and falling. Weeping in lowliness. James 4, 6 says, God gives more grace. Anybody need more grace? God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Christians, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Men and women, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands before God, you sinners. Purify yourselves, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you invite you to stand with me as we close, although I would also say if you need to kneel in humility or remain seated, you're welcome to do so as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of your word despite its challenges. We thank you for the call and the reminder to walk in humility. Give us grace to, to let go of our own strength, to let go of our obstinate hearts, of our wayward patterns of rebellion and pride. Give us grace to humbly fall down before you, to submit to you, to resist the devil, to cry out to you for that greater grace, because we know that you're a God that opposes the proud, but you give grace to the humble, and so we humbly cry out to you now for your blessing, for your grace, for the mercy of Christ. We, we humbly put faith in him that we would be a people who don't live by our own strength, but who live humbly before you, and in your due time, God, in your way, in whatever season you choose, would you lift us up? We await that day when we will fully and finally be lifted up with Christ in eternity. But for now, we look to you to lead us and guide us. Fill us now with your grace and your blessing. In Jesus' name.